Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. So we're in the book of Acts and we're looking at the history of the early church and today we're going to attempt to go from Acts chapter 1 verse 12 right through to verse 26. The topic for this morning is God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Let's read Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased the field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language a keldama, which that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now keep your finger in Acts chapter 1. Just want to quickly recap a few of the things that we looked at last week. The crucifixion's taken place. Can you guys see this slide? I wonder if the guys can maybe just shut the curtains for me. Thank you, guys. The crucifixion takes place, and over a 40-day period, Jesus is alive and he's seen by over 500 witnesses. Then the ascension takes place, which we looked at last week. And then there's a 10-day period, which is where we find ourselves now. And then after this 10-day period, while the disciples are waiting, then the promised Holy Spirit comes. As Jesus mentioned, the promise of the Father. Now, we have seen the Lord Jesus remind the disciples about this promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, who would comfort, he would help, he would remind them of things said by Jesus, and he would teach them on that basis. And that it was he that would empower them to fulfill the Great Commission, which was to reach out to the whole world. Beginning in Jerusalem, then the Lord Jesus ascends and disappears into the sky. And we learn so much from this, including the fact that the Lord Jesus will return in similar fashion as we saw last time, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. Now, one of the things that we learned that we must not do is focus on 
and try to determine the timing of his return. There was someone who didn't take the Lord's advice on this and predicted that the Lord Jesus would return in the 1980s. And he wrote a pamphlet called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Must Return in 1988. Evidently, he got his calculations wrong. Not learning from his mistake, the next year, convinced that he had fine-tuned his formula, he wrote another pamphlet. 89 reasons why Jesus must come in 1989. Someone said that the 89th reason was why he didn't come in 1988. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? That's one of the things that we learned that we must not do. Another thing we learned that we must do is seek first the kingdom of God as he sees it, not as we would like to see it. First, we must embrace a cross. Then we will receive a crown, a crown of glory that will not fade away, the scripture says. Now, in the face of their misunderstanding, some of the things that the Lord Jesus had said, you could so easily expect the disciples at this point to be depressed, disheartened, disgruntled, and discouraged. But no. In Luke chapter 24, verse 51, it says, Now it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. Now remember, this is the end of Luke's first volume as it relates to the beginning of his second. This is the end of Luke's gospel as it relates to the beginning of the book of Acts. Verse 52, and they worshipped him and returned obediently to Jerusalem with a bad attitude. I can't believe it, man. No, it says they returned with great joy. They weren't disgruntled. And they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. You can see how patience is having its perfect work in them. They made so many blunders. They made so many errors and slip-ups. Did you know that there's great blessings sometimes in getting things wrong? For us as believers, everything's redempted, redemptive. There's great blessings sometimes in making mistakes, in dropping a ball. You know, we all suffer from the same disease that the Apostle Peter suffered from, which is foot and mouth disease, right? Every time we open our mouth, we put our foot in it. And after doing that five or six times, and you constantly keep getting it wrong, it humbles you. <laughs> if you've got sense, if you've got wisdom, right? It humbles you. You're like, hmm. I'm not going to be so quick to say that next time. Lord, I'm not going to presume I know anything. Um, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. Or at least put my brain in gear before I put my foot on the gas and open my mouth, right? Patience. It's having its perfect work in them. Now let's have a further look at the detail as described in Acts chapter 1 verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. Remember, the ascension takes place on Olivet or on the Mount of Olives. And so the disciples need to travel from there to where they would receive the promise, which is where? Jerusalem. And it's a short walk. It's actually approximately 15 minutes. It's 2,000 cubits or seven furlongs or 1,000 paces, just less than a mile. Albert Barnes states, a Sabbath day's journey was as far as might be lawfully traveled by a Jew on the Sabbath. It's not the Sabbath, but how far they could travel on the Sabbath. The distance of a lawful journey on the Sabbath was not determined by the laws of Moses, point, but the Jewish teachers. This measure was determined on because it was a tradition. And the, tr tr the tradition was that in the camp of the Israelites, when coming from Egypt, 
No part of the camp was more than 2,000 paces from the tabernacle. And over this space, therefore, they were permitted to travel for worship. So that's how we come to this Hebrew term or this Hebrew idiom, which is a Sabbath day's journey. How far is it? It's a Sabbath day's journey. An Englishman would say, oh, it's just down the road. An American would say, it's just a few blocks east. Notice I never tried to do an American accent. A first century Jewish person would say, oh, it's just a Sabbath day's journey. Verse 13. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Notice, not Iscariot, there were two Judases, just like there were two Jameses. James, which one? I don't know. Judas, which one? I don't know. I don't know how they determined which one. Maybe it was this way. Son of James and Judas Iscariot. Notice it's the upper room. Possibly the very same upstairs room where they shared the last Passover meal with their master. Because it's there where they were staying. It's a continued residence. It's not necessarily permanent, but possibly a guest or rented chamber where they were staying presently. Here they are having fellowship. They have, like you, it was a little while ago and I couldn't break you up. Fellowship. They're having koinonia. Which, ref which refers to partnership or joint participation in a common cause, which was a love for Jesus Christ and a commitment to him. The disciples. Notice how Luke carefully and painstakingly names all of, that is, Jesus' disciples particularly. For remember, they had all fled when Jesus was arrested, right? And who knows exactly what happened to them all? At one point after the death of Christ, Peter decided to go back to fishing. And then one day while he was actually on the boat, he saw Jesus on the shore, didn't he? And he jumped out of the boat, swam to shore to see the Lord. Thomas, who for one reason or another, missed fellowship one evening. In John chapter 20, verse 24, it says, And so it happened to be the, the very same time that Jesus was to appear to his disciples. What a night to miss Bible study. What a night to miss prayer meeting. What a night to miss fellowship. See, and some things don't change. Jesus promises where two or three are gathered together in his name, he's right there in the midst. So that means when believers are gathering and I'm not there, I'm not where Jesus, if you like, is manifest to his people in a sense. I'm not going to benefit from what they would because I'm not there where they are and he is in a special way. We know that the Lord is everywhere all at the same time because the spirit of God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere all at the same time. You can't hide from him. But he's not everywhere manifest. He's not everywhere communicating and speaking to his people, speaking to their hearts and their thinking and their understanding. See, the same could be true for us. How many nights have you met with the, with the brethren and been extraordinarily benefited and blessed? You come away, you think, you went thinking, oh, I ruined, I'm tired and it's been a long week and I really can't be bothered with this. But you feel, you feel yourself automatically just getting yourself together, dragging yourself to the car and going to fellowship. And then you, you thought, man, the devil's a liar. Because if I never came, I wouldn't have got blessed. I don't, there's never been a time I've been to fellowship and not been benefited. Even if it was to hear a word of rebuke. It's all, like I said, redemptive. See? extraordinarily blessed when we go, then I wonder how many nights we've missed and missed out on a blessing. I need to take that to heart. Sundays is great, as I mentioned last week, but there's so much more we can benefit from. There's meals being prepared during the week that we can be benefited by. Well, everyone is present and accounted for except one, Judas Iscariot. 
In verse 16, Peter will refer to them all that are there as brethren, reminding them that they are all a part of the same spiritual family, all adopted sons and daughters of which God is the head and the father. Some of them are literal brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. But they're all spiritual brothers, and that's what's important. Because how many of you know your spiritual relationship to your brothers and sisters in Christ really supersedes your relationship with your physical family members? It doesn't negate them, but it's a higher relationship. So here they are, all together, with one mind, no longer arguing about who's the greatest. Perfect unity. No division, no bickering, no backbiting, no schism, completely harmonious and unified. Verse 14, these all, notice, not some of them, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. And that's the way it should be when we come together in the presence of the Lord. Psalm 133 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments, it is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life evermore. The high priest, Aaron, is a picture of Christ, who is the head of the body, it says in Ephesians. With the oil, which is very often symbolic of the spirit, being transferred from the head, running down to the body, which is us. He's the head and we're the body. Amen? And it's a beautiful picture of that which takes place when there's unity. It says there God commands the blessing. Oh my goodness. Imagine not being able to dodge God's blessing. No matter how much you try to get away from it. For there God commands the blessing. That's where we want to live. That's where we want to abide. Amen? Verse 14 helps us to see that there were also others who were with the disciples in the upper room. Verse 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women. The women could be a reference to some of the women who had followed the Lord Jesus from Galilee in the earlier days of his earthly ministry. Luke chapter 8. Verse 1 says, Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom, he had, uh, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna, the wife of Chuza, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. Possibly these could have been some of the women who were in the upper room. And also still faithful, these ladies, right to the end. Because you see them appear, not just at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but right at, the, right at the end, at the foot of the cross when he was being executed. John chapter 19, verse 25 says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, Mary, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and again, Mary Magdalene. The ladies, faithful. Hmm. Nothing don't change much. Verse 14, the 11 disciples with the women who we just described and Mary the mother of Jesus particularly. Mary is the only one out of all of the women who is named. She was there along with the others praying to her son, who is now her savior. Notice 
Her name comes after the apostles. Now, this is significant. It's not Mary and then the apostles. It's the other way around, right? Now, if you're a Catholic or an ex-Catholic like I am, or I was, then you know why this is significant. Because according to Roman Catholic doctrine and dogma, Mary holds a much higher office than the apostles. I stress, according to Roman Catholic dogma. Mary, if you didn't know, is known as the co-mediatrix. Yet, if Mary has such high standing, surely with a title that describes her as the one who, along with Christ Jesus, mediates on the behalf of mankind, ouch, she shouldn't be bringing up the rear. In terms of importance, she should be mentioned first, surely. If she actually is co-mediatrix, and also, as is purported, co-redemptrix, huh? and these, I mean, these terms, they, this is just the beginning. There are many, and we don't have time to go into all of them, yet I will give you three examples of unbiblical Catholic doctrine, three of them. First of all, the Immaculate Conception. Second, Mary as co-mediatrix with Jesus Christ. And third, the Assumption. You might be familiar with these. The Blessed Virgin Mary, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Now, I don't know what you think when you hear Immaculate Conception, but I remember, even as a Catholic, what I used to think that meant was Jesus was conceived in an amazing fashion, not just by the power of the Holy Spirit, but he was conceived without sin. But that's not really exactly what it means. It, 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 that is a little bit of what it means, but really to the heart of it, what it means is the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception teaches that the Blessed Virgin Mary was born without original sin. Not Jesus was born without it. She was born without original sin. That's the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. Furthermore, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary was a virgin during her entire lifetime. Yet Matthew, a Jew writing to Jews, calls Jesus her firstborn son. I mean, that doctrine of the Immaculate Conception is, is annihilated just with one verse. Yeah? Verse 14 goes on to say that also in the upper room were Jesus' brothers. That further clarifies Matthew 1.25. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55 says, the people said, wait a minute. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, just in case you thought, hmm, did he really mean brothers? Yes, because he's going to name them. His brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And his sisters, are they not all with us? The Immaculate Conception, or the Doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. How about the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Doctrine of Mary as co-mediatrix with Jesus Christ? It's the most disturbing doctrine which affords the, the Blessed Virgin Mary a place positionally as co-mediatrix with Christ. You know, it says in 1 Timothy that there's only one mediator between God and man, and it's the man Christ Jesus. I mean, could that be any clearer? Yet, Roman Catholic doctrine would have us believe that, no, 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 Jesus can't really do this on his own. He needs some help. And the best person to help him is his mom. This is Pope Benedict the, what's that, 10, 15, 16? He's the current Pope who continues to popularize these false doctrines. Hmm, see him in his robes? All right. Now, in the words of Pope John Paul, who is 
the Pope who preceded this one, right? I think he's dead. In the words of Pope John Paul II, in union with Christ, he says, in submission to him, she, Mary, collaborated in obtaining the grace of salvation for all humanity in God's plan. In God's plan. Mary, the new Eve, hello, united to the new Adam, hey, in restoring humanity to its original dignity. So I'm saying, Jesus needs help. Her cooperation with her son continues for all time in the universal motherhood which she enjoys in the order of grace. Trusting in this maternal cooperation, let us turn to Mary, imploring her help in all our needs. Now, this is not just some Catholic from around the corner telling me what he thinks. This is the head, or this was someone who presided over the, 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 the Roman Catholic institution. So you're hearing it literally from the horse's mouth. This is heresy. Now, please don't be offended. I know I can be a bit coarse in my presentation. Um, but it's, it's our responsibility to be Bereans. We can't say we believe in the Bible or the God of the Bible and then throw the Bible in the bin in terms of appreciating what it actually teaches rather than that which is said it teaches. Amen? So if you are a Roman Catholic, my aim this morning is not to offend you, but just to be quite robust with the truth. This is heresy. There is no scriptural basis for placing Mary in a position as co-mediatrix for, for the church on earth. Christ's words were also very clear on this point. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, full stop, on my own. There seems to be conflicting perspectives. The Blessed Virgin Mary said, in terms of the doctrine now, of the assumption. The assumption is, really, that's a good name. The assumption is a doctrine that teaches that the Blessed Virgin Mary had been taken up Body and soul, just like the Lord Jesus. I don't think so. On November 1st, 1950, the Feast of All Saints, Pope Pius XI declared as a dogma revealed by God that Mary, the Immaculate Perpetually Virgin Mother of God, after the completion of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into the glory of heaven. Mary, apparently a model for faith, not idol for worship. Mary can be a, a model like Peter or Paul for our faith, but she's not divine, nor is she able to provide for our salvation. Jesus Christ alone is God and is the only person capable of enabling the salvation of all mankind. The word of God is explicit on this subject. Not implicit. It doesn't just imply it. It's explicit. It's really clear. On May 1st, 1946, Pope Pius, again, the 12th, asked all bishops in the world whether they thought this belief in the assumption of Mary into heaven should be defined as a proposition of faith, and whether they, with their clergy and people, desired the definition. Almost all the bishops replied in the affirmative. Historically, there have been a whole host of erroneous teachings that have developed over the years. I just am limited in my time, otherwise I would go through these. There are so many of them. Burning of holy candles, canonization of dead saints, Good Friday, fish only and eating red meat, forbidden. Huh. I know that one worked its way into my culture, because at Easter, you, you, 
you dare not eat no red meat. It's, a, it's just it's fish and bun and cheese, right? And hardo bread. <laughs> All right. See? Holy water, 1009 AD. Before that, there was no such thing as holy water. These doctrines and dogmas were introduced over a process of time. Sale of indulgences or tickets to sin. John Tetzel used to go around with a, with a box called a coffer. And he says, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory, wherever that is, springs. It was a catchphrase. I mean, and nothing don't change. Nothing's new under the sun. We could name a few of them that would have us really feeling quite nervous. Like, name it and claim it. But that's for another day. <laughs> Transubstantiation. Oh my goodness, if only we could talk about that. Priestly power of absolution. Your sins are forgiven, my son. Only God can forgive sin. Purgatory, as I mentioned. The Spanish Inquisition. Wow, we just need to take a Sunday just to talk about the Spanish Inquisition. You ever read of Fox's Book of Martyrs? So many erroneous doctrines brought in as Bible, quote-unquote. I'd like to say that she, that is Mary, was not immaculately conceived. She was conceived like everybody else. She was not a perpetual virgin. She had nothing to do with our redemption from our sin. She did not ascend into heaven in bodily form as the Lord Jesus did. And she does not sit at the right hand of Jesus making intercession for us here on earth. These are all human fabrications, not found to be true according to the scriptures. In Luke chapter 1 verse 47, Mary defined herself. Talk about, again, speaking from the horse's mouth. Mary defined herself, referring to God as my savior. Luke 1 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Only sinners need a Savior. Mary was a sinner. Mary probably cringes. Every time she's worshipped, adored, bowed to, prayed to. Now, does that mean that Mary wasn't special? No, it doesn't. She was and she deserves honor, but not according to the titles Mother of God. I mean, that don't even make sense. Or Queen of Heaven. Steve, she was a godly spiritual woman. Verse 48 says, and all generations would call her blessed. She's special. But let's not elevate Mary out of her place. Verse 15 you got your finger in Acts, right? One. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Notice, the Holy Spirit's work didn't start in the book of Acts. He spoke, verse 16, before by the mouth of David concerning Judas in the future. Here again, we see ancient prophecy about to be fulfilled. And he goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Verse 15, Peter stands up and does something significant here. He steadfastly confirms that God is completely in control. He steadfastly confirms that God is completely in control. It could be argued at this point that the disciples were thinking about their friend, Judas. You remember that none of them realized that he was going to do what he did. The temptation at this point, as they think about their friend, could be to think that, oh no, man, I can't believe it. We're all here, look, rolling with Jesus. And look, we kind of, we made it at least to this point, but Judas never made it. 
It's like Judas was the one that got away. But didn't Jesus select him as a disciple? Didn't he give him power and authority? Remember when he sent them out? Judas was among the group who were casting out demons. Judas was among the group that were healing the deaf, healing the blind. In Matthew 7, you can read it at your own leisure, you have a similar group who stand before God pleading that they ought to be justified and allowed into heaven because of the same things that they did. Yet he says to me, I do not know you. It's like, man, I can't believe it. He seemed like he run a good race. Can you guarantee that the person sitting next to you is going to be with you in heaven? Can that person guarantee that you sitting next to them is going to be in heaven? But I can't believe it. No. You run a good race, but... He didn't make it to the finish line. And Jesus is great. He's amazing. No one can't tell me that he's not, but he's not great enough to have held on to Judas. And it could be thought at this point, wow, the Lord is in control, but not in complete control. And that could have left them feeling very nervous. See, this was serious because Judas hadn't walked away. Judas wasn't taking a temporary break like he's backslidden. He'd committed suicide. Judas was dead. Now that's scary. No doubt they, they may have discussed this. If not, they must have thought it because as a disciple... I know that I have thought it, that is. And the conclusion very often is, is Jesus able to keep me? Now that's one way that they could have been thinking. On the other hand, maybe they could have said, you know what? I'm terrified. What if... God forced Judas to do what he did. Maybe he was made by God to betray Christ. Maybe he didn't have a, he didn't have a choice. It was always going to happen, and God controlled Judas as if by remote control. Now that is really scary. Now listen carefully. It's neither. Because God is in complete control and he didn't make Judas do what he did. Peter is, is here at this moment probably identifying a series of verses from the Psalms when he says what he says. Psalm 41, verse 9, says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And we see that in John chapter 13, verse 16 through 19, where Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me, we just read that, has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. The he is in italics, added by the translator. Now, prophecy is not just God looking down the corridors of time and seeing what is going to happen. 
He does. But it's not just that. Prophecy is not just being able to, oh, I can see that he's going to do that, she's going to, mm, I can see it right from here. Even though it hasn't happened yet, he can do that. And that is prophecy, but it's not just that. Prophecy is also God telling us what he is going to make happen. What he will cause to happen. True, he does foresee it, but he is orchestrating and coordinating. Now, I know it sounds as if I'm contradicting myself. Not so. If you think that God is great, he's greater. Watch this. Jesus would have a betrayer. True? God determined it from before the very foundations of the earth. But God didn't cause Judas to betray Jesus. John chapter 17, verse 12, says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name, Father. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. Notice, the question ain't so much who's come, who's here. The question is, who did the Father give Jesus? Jesus said in John 16, 15, John 15, 16, you never chose me, I chose you. The question then isn't, did you come? The question is, has he chosen you? And he says, those whom you gave me, Father, I kept them. There weren't no slippage on my part, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says, therefore he... Jesus is also able, check it, to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make on his own intercession for them. The problem with Judas was that he hadn't come to God through Christ. He hung around with Christ. He talked about Christ. He served Christ. But he was not Christ's. Turn to Luke chapter 13. It keeps getting scary, doesn't it? I believe it's in Galatians. It says, you know what? It's not that you know him. The question is, are you known by him? Does he know you? Does he know me? Luke chapter 13, verse 24. Strive, strive to enter through the narrow gate. See, there's... <laughs> For many I say... Not a few. Many, I say to you, will seek to enter. I will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, like he did the ark, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, it's too late, saying, Lord, 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 open up for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, but wait a minute. <laughs> Look, you're joking, right? We, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught on our streets. We was around you. You was around us. We thought that that was enough. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you, where you are from. Depart from me, all you, and you see how he identifies them. All you, not church attenders, not church attenders who wear suits and ties, not good people. He says, depart from me, you who practice stuff, even though you do that stuff. And this is what identifies them, not what they wear or what they do on a Sunday. He says, your workers of iniquity. It says in Timothy, the solid foundation of God stands sure, having this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his. We don't know. We can't point the finger and judge and criticize. The scripture says, the Lord knows 
those who are his. He can point the finger. But let them that name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Verse 28, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. You, so interesting. Whose decision was it to be a worker of iniquity? It was Judas's decision. It wasn't Jesus' decision. Jesus never made him. It was Judas' decision, and that's scary. Jesus picked him. You look at my man in public, and he's, I mean, the disciples who were with him for three and a half years never realized. So that means in public, he was one thing. How many of you know in private, he was another? In John, it says that he had the bare face liberty and cheek to steal money out of the money bag because he was the treasurer one thing in public another thing in private but everything happens in a way that is open before him with whom we have to do and naked because he sees everything in the light and in the dark and you know what Jesus picked him but it was Judas who decided to sin. That is terrifying. In Luke 6, it says that Jesus stayed up all night in prayer before making his decision. It must have been very difficult. John chapter 6, verse 70, says, Jesus answered them. I don't think I've got it. No. John 6, you can just note this, verse 70, it says, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12, and one of you is a devil? So you've got to remember, Jesus knew this way before Judas betrayed him. It wasn't a surprise to him, but he picked him anyway. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the 12. Someone had to do it. Turn to Matthew chapter 26. Someone had to do it, but it wasn't God that made him do it. But God will use individuals like that because he looks down the corridors of time. And he can see and he knows what decisions a person is going to make. He doesn't make them make that decision like Pharaoh. If anything, he's like ten times, please let my people go, says Moses. But he's not hearing it. So all right then. And if you remember, God actually said to Moses before he even sent him, he's not going to listen to you. So God's like, okay. Is God using a remote control on Pharaoh? No. Pharaoh is making his own determined decisions. So the Lord says, okay, you're going to harden your heart. You're not going to hear what I said. Good. I'm now going to reinforce the hardening of your heart. So even if you wanted to change your mind, now you can't. Yet, you will be completely held accountable for what you've done. Matthew 26, verse 24. And the Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. Can't break the scripture. Can't be broken. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now that's deep. Hopefully, this makes us fearful and encourages us with great trembling to work out our own salvation. Whose fault is it that Judas betrayed Christ? It's Judas's fault. Look at verse 20, same chapter, Matthew 26. When evening had come, he sat down with all 12 of them. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, 
He who dips his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said, you've said it. I believe right up to that point, Jesus was continually loving him. And if anything, he could have done what he was going to do. Just repent, man. I mean, what Peter did wasn't any better. But there's a difference. One of them had a savior. It wasn't because Peter was greater. Peter had someone that was holding on to him. Where Judas didn't. The point is, get in that place where he's holding on to you. Over in Acts chapter 2, Peter, speaking of Jesus, says in verse 23, we'll look at that when we get there, maybe next week or week after, not next week, week after next, because we've got a guest next week. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, that is Jesus, being delivered by two things, by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. See that? You have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put him to death. Wait a minute, Peter, how can you accuse the people of them of something like, of a, t- of a thing like that? When it wasn't them, it was God's determined purpose. It, yeah, but it was also his foreknowledge. Knowing that these people, regardless of what anyone said or did, were going to do what they were going to do. So hence, Peter says, you done it. Because God didn't make them do it. You have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. As I said, there are two things there. Determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. This is what is called the confluence. Or the joining together. Like two rivers flowing together. Of God's foreknowledge and predetermination on one hand. And man's absolute responsibility on the other. They flow together. You may say, but you can't have it both ways. Well, don't try and tell me that. Tell God, if you dare. Because that is the truth. And if we don't understand that, that doesn't say anything about the fact that God can't do it. It just says something about our understanding of what God can do and the limitations of our understanding. The Armenian wants to revolt. Armenian is a particular perspective on these issues. There are, two, there are two main ones. The Armenian, which is one, on one hand, wants to resolve this seeming contradiction by saying, well, actually, God doesn't really control things. He kind of just gets it started and then we make the decisions. And the hyper-Calvinist perspective, and I stress hyper-Calvinist as opposed to the doctrines of grace. The hyper-Calvinist says, our decisions have nothing to do with it. This is the opposite. God is just pulling the strings and making it happen. Nothing you do, say, or think is down to you. You have no choice. You see, and both extremes are wrong. Because they don't deal with the confluence. They don't deal with the tension of bringing both points together and both points being true. That is that God determines the outcome, but men make and are responsible for the choices. I told it was deep. God is in complete control. But man is absolutely responsible. It would have been better for Judas not to have been born than make the decisions that he made. Yet he did. And God, knowing that beforehand, used it for his purposes. So Peter uses this as a source of encouragement to comfort his fellow disciples because it shows that God is still in control. 
through the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, the traitor himself was fully responsible for his own actions. And you know what? Judas knew it. Judas knew that he was responsible for his own actions. How do we know that? How do we know that he knew it? Because of what he told the high priest. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 3, it says, Then Judas, then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned. Not somebody made me do it and I couldn't help it. The devil made me do it. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they turned around and said, we don't care. If there was ever a man in this world who would want to turn and say to God, you made me do this. Because it had to be done. If anyone in history could have turned and said, you made me do this. You predestined me to do this. If ever there was a man to say that, it was Judas. But he doesn't. Pilate says, Pilate says that. Pilate says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. No, you're not. No, you're not innocent. You're Pontius Pilate, the Roman procurator. You could have released Jesus. You're just not accepting responsibility. But you will. What do, you, what, do you think that by washing your hands, that that will change anything? Now, I'm not going to answer the question, is suicide unpardonable? Because I just don't know. I know the Bible talks about the unpardonable sin, and it doesn't say that that's it, but I'm not going to make any comments on suicide. It's evidently not a good idea. Verse 17, Acts chapter 1, For he was numbered, as we roll to the end, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part of this ministry, now this man purchased the field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his guts gushed out. Now this probably happened when he hung himself. Possibly the branch to which he was attached or was hanging broke and he fell head first and was splattered on the ground below. Verse 19, and it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, see, they had to be qualified, to that day when he was taken up from us, the ascension, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. See, remember there were 120 in this room. And they proposed two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, I mean, <laughs> Mad AKA, and Matthias, he's only got one name. And they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. I suppose there was a process how they got to these last two, but they couldn't choose between the two. Verse 25, to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go, oh my goodness, to his own place. And they cast their lots. Many say that Peter was over hasty in casting lots and selecting Matthias. But it's understandable. The Holy Spirit had not yet come in the way that he was in the next chapter. And historically, this was a way that was a common means of decision-making throughout the Old Testament. But soon, everything would change. They, after this point, would make decisions in another way. Verse 26, and they cast lots, and a lot fell on Matthias. <laughs> the guy who wasn't, well. The lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. 
Wow. Matthias, an obscure brother, always around, but never recognized. That should encourage some of your hearts. You know, I'm a pastor now, up front, teaching, everybody knows my name. Right? I'm still trying to get to know everybody else's name. But you know, for 11 years, I worked in the back in children's ministry. And one day, God came and got me. Just like he did with David, when David was on the backside of a hill looking after some smelly sheep. But he was faithful to those sheep, and there was no one around giving him applause. Oh, David, you're amazing, you're heavy. Woo. Show me your shepherding skills. No one ever said that to him. He was round the back, just doing what God had called him to do. There playing on his lute, or on his harp, or his guitar back in you know, modern day. Singing to the Lord, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Can I encourage you, if you're sitting here and you're a Matthias, just be faithful. Don't look for applause, don't look for someone to pat you on the back. It's nice when you get patted on the back, right? But you serve the Lord, Christ. And he eventually will reward you, definitely in the next life, but maybe even in this life. But you know what God's reward always is? God's reward is always greater responsibility. You've been faithful, rule over ten cities. Can I encourage you? Matthias was always there. But who had heard of Matthias? I mean, and you don't even hear about him after this. But he was selected to, to be among the twelve. An obscure brother, always around but never recognized. Imagine if he hadn't been at the prayer meeting that night. I mean, it's all good. He would have never known. It would have been just like, oh, brother, where was, the other, where was you the other night? Oh, man, you know what? Arsenal were playing Man United, didn't it? So, couldn't make it. Oh, man, it was heavy. They determined to pick another apostle, another disciple. Okay, safe. He would have never even known until the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, when it's our reward ceremony, right? And when he should have stepped up and received the gold medal, He's going to be on the second or the third rostrum, silver or maybe, gold, maybe, maybe bronze. <sighs> See? Imagine if he hadn't been there that night. Now brought into the leadership team. Oh, my goodness. Because he met the qualification. You know, they say, they say the scripture says, promotion doesn't come from the east, the west, or the south. It doesn't say north, but really, the implication is promotion comes from the Lord. And you know the beautiful thing is when God promotes you, sorry to keep you, when God promotes you, you're promoted. You don't have to hold on to it. You don't have to fight for it. It's yours. But if you gave it to you, you're going to have to fight for that day and night to hold on to it, to keep it. He met the qualification, and there's a lot to be said right here about becoming a leader, but that's for another time and another place. For now, let's pray. Father, I heard someone say once that I'm not worried so much about the portions of the Bible that I don't understand. It's the portions of the Bible that I do understand that worry me. And Father, it's healthy for us to be challenged right down to our core as to where we're really at. And I thank you, Lord, all my shouting and my screaming and my animations ain't going to do it, Lord. It can only be done by the work of your spirit. And so that's my prayer, Father, that by your spirit who you have sent, you would work, Lord, on the hearts of the individuals that are in this room listening to my voice. But Lord, even on the tape, the CD, the MP3, the podcast, Lord, 
I pray, Father, that you would so speak by your spirit and convince, Lord, individuals who are in that place where they're not sure, Father, that you would help them to make, to make it sure and help them to realize, help us to realize, Lord, that we are personally responsible for our actions. And Lord, that, call, that, that ought to cause us to be humble. That ought to cause us to fall to our knees and say, God, I'm a sinner. There's no, there's no need for me to deliberate that. Lord, I'm a sinner. And I fall so short. Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me. I want to get to that place where I know that you know, that I know that you know that I'm yours. I don't want to be deliberating. I need that which comes by your spirit that, that helps me to know that I've, I've been guaranteed, Ephesians 1, that I've been sealed by your spirit and my conscience is aware of that and I can go to my bed and sleep at night peacefully. My sleep is sweet because I know that not Mary, but Christ Jesus has mediated. And he has been the one who has made atonement for my sins. Lord, I pray that you'd impress that on the hearts of your people to confirm it. But Lord, the hearts of those who are not your people yet that you desire to be your people. Lord, you're, you're sovereign. And we worship you this afternoon in the name of Jesus. Amen. Put up, it's good to stand with me, please. Only.